Welcome to the CanoeRaceWorld.com podcast, your home for everything related to marathon canoe racing. Now, it's time to get your paddles wet with your hosts, Kevin Olson and Bill Mahaffey. Take it away, boys. Welcome back, canoe racing fans. I'm Kevin Olson, your host of Canoe Race World, joined today by co-host Rebecca Davis. How are we doing tonight, Rebecca? I'm doing pretty well. We're living here in Michigan with what I consider to be the worst weather, where the sun doesn't come out for days on end, and it's like 35 degrees. So <sighs> terrible paddling, not, no snow for skiing. It's it's like the worst training conditions. <laughs> oh, oh, it's, yeah, it's bad. It was it's funny. So I went back to New York in November for for Thanksgiving, and I was watching a, a video the other day, and a guy said this, and it really resonated with me. He goes, he goes, when you go to like on a vacation, and you go somewhere. And then you're not even like halfway through your trip. You're like, you just want to go home. That's when you know you found your place. And that's how I was when it wasn't Thanksgiving. Because like it didn't, I was there for five days. It didn't, there was no sun any of those five days. It's just nuts. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's how we are here. Up further north, they have like, almost two feet of snow so they're living in skiing paradise and the weather's not even that much like colder i mean it's like yeah. it's like the critical four degrees colder so the snow stays right. and we're just living in mud <laughs> oh, yeah that's that's rough that's rough but yeah. bill couldn't make it today tonight he is doing the dad thing so got to give him props for that uh supporting his uh daughter uh she's uh in a play tonight so congrats for bill Talking about snow, Rebecca, you got uh, some cross-country skiing coming up this uh, this coming weekend, right? Yeah, I think I'll do the first race of my season. Uh, there's two in Michigan this weekend, both about 7K. I'm going to do at least one of them and see how – well, I know it's going to hurt. Like skiing, you can always lull yourself into the sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm pretty in shape. My running's going well. And then you do your first ski race and realize that that's all a big lie. So – I'm I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> kind of keep me honest. Because there's no like uh, research out there for canoe racers, are very 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 limited. We kind of look at different research for you know different endurance sports and cross country skiers have across the board have higher VO2 maxes and they attribute it to because it's a full body sport probably one of the hardest aerobic sports you can do yeah i i mean i haven't done them all but it's it really takes it out of you <laughs> that's for sure but yeah. i think you did a canoe race last weekend right i did do a canoe race i did the the good old silver river i don't know what they're calling it event or race challenge uh, yeah something yeah so yeah so we had the silver river this is this caps off the the season, you know, starts the season for in Florida, you know, the, the Florida season goes the entire year, but this is always their, their, their first event. It's usually pretty well attended, you know, really great race, great, great conditions. I won it in the C1 again, was a little bit faster this year, and I actually was able to battle it out with 
Bobby Johnson and Rod Price. And these guys are like legends in the ultra world. So it was pretty cool to, to paddle against them and, and, and come out the victor on that on that one. But like Bobby's training for the Everglades Challenge, which is a 300-mile in the golf <laughs> challenge. Yeah, like, that's a, that event is really, uh, really cool. There's a bunch of guys from Michigan that go down and do it every year. And, I mean, it's it's a different type of tough. And uh, <laughs> it can be really slow conditions depending on how the wind is, like four or five miles an hour, just depending yeah. – on, on the way things are going. So it's props to those guys. I think that's in March, right? Yeah, that's in March. Yep. So we're actually, uh, we're, we're going to try to get those two on the podcast to talk about the differences between ultra and marathon. That'll be a episode to, to keep a lookout for today though. We are going to dive into the topic of Rabaska. I had a listener reach out to me. His name is Alex. I should have asked you how you pronounce your last name. Bordeloup? Yeah, Bordeloup. Bordeloup. He reached he reached out to me and said, "Hey, this is, you know, I think this could be a great uh, topic for the podcast." We agreed. And so here we are. We are going to tackle the topic of what Rabaska is and how it compares to marathon and what, what the links are, because they are very close sports, but they are there are a lot of differences. So how are we doing tonight, Alex? I'm doing very good. I'm very pleased to be on your podcast. On your podcast. I've been a fan of a long time. So yeah, and I thought probably topics must be harder to get during winter. So I thought, well, maybe that's a, a good time to talk about Rabaska since you guys in the U.S. don't know much about it. Yeah, for sure. Tell us a little bit about you, Alex. What is your paddling background and all that type of stuff? Yeah, sure. I started paddling around, I, I, uh, it was 2016. Um, I'm actually someone that I used to be like a couch potato and then decided to get my life back on track. Lost a bunch of pounds, then was looking for for a new challenge and um, paddling has always been something I wanted to try. So I reached out to the Rabaska team and I was lucky enough, they were missing some guys for the season. So I was only thinking about going for a couple of practices or like, like a spare guy. But then they said, well, we've got a spot for you for the whole season. So I said, well, okay, let's go. Uh, I'll try to go with the challenge. And I guess I got the bite uh, at that moment. <laughs> so I went and did uh, four classic for a full season uh, out in Rubasca. And then I decided to try C2. So I was doing a little bit of C2 and Rubasca at the same time until I finally decided to do a full season. Well, let's say that the pandemic kind of helped because there was actually no Rubasca during the last two seasons. So uh, I started battling C2s, and I've been uh, I've I've done my first classic in a C2 this summer. So yeah, that's pretty much uh, where I am at now. That's great. Now that you've done C2, maybe this is putting you on the spot, but what do you prefer, C2 or Rabaska? Well, there are completely two different sports, actually, in in a sense of how much you got to train during a year. I'd say. Picking up between uh, Rabaska or C2, I'd say it's probably about what kind of goals you're you're chasing. So when I decided to leave Rabaska and try C2, is that I I kind of think that I learned everything I had to learn in Rabaska, 
and then I wanted to try something new. But also the fact is that it is kind of hard to know how how where how you compare to other paddlers where in your in Arabasca because Arabasca has nine paddlers in it. So you're just one of the nine. So it's kind of hard to say, is the boat fast because of me or is it slow because of me? Well, when you're in a C2 or in a C1, you kind of know exactly where you're at. Yeah, for so, sure. Uh, so I was kind of feeling, you know, the need to see where I was at. I wanted to keep learning as uh, this is something that really keeps me uh, interested in staying in the sport. So I thought, well, let's do it. So I'll, I'll try uh, C2. But um, I am next season is going to be a, a Rabaska season because I have a new team that reached out to me that needed a coach and uh, a stern guy. So I'm going to be the coach for that team. So it's going to be a, a year off of C2 or I'll probably do a couple of small races. But like the, the big race, which is the Classic, is going to be in, uh, in Rabaska. But after that, I guess I'll probably get back to C2 because I think that once you've tasted it, you can really feel the training is actually putting you where you want to be. On the opposite to Rabasco, where most people probably have a lot less training. There are two very different sports. So uh, I guess most people that usually taste what the C2 is like usually don't come back unless they say like, I'm unable to put 150 hours this year. I can only put like 60 or 70. Then they might go and say, oh, I'll I'll do another uh, Rabasco year because I don't want to stop completely. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, that's interesting that you say that. And, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit more um, down the conversation. But I'd like to touch on the selection process for Rabalska and everything like that, because um, I know how it's done for some Dragon Boat crews here in the U.S. When you're talking about, oh, I don't know how powerful or, or how fast I am comparatively because you're in a, a group of nine. It's 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 interesting to to know how they do the selection process for Rabaska. Before we get there, why don't we why don't we go through a little bit more about the differences in the you know C two and C one world in Rabaska. So the obvious difference is you have nine paddlers instead of two. From there, tell us a little bit more what differentiates the two sports. Yeah, sure. So, well, first of all, Rabaska is 25 feet long, so obviously it's a much bigger boat. Uh, we are using nine paddler at the moment, but it used to be 11, actually, because the boats are mostly designed for 11 paddlers. I think the uh, the desire was to actually form more teams. So by putting less paddler in the boat, you you would be able to have a little bit more team, you know, with the same group of paddler, the same amount of paddler available. Here, the association here in Quebec decided that nine paddler was going to be the, uh, the, the the thing that's going to keep for uh, for all those years. The difference is also is that uh, in Rabaska, you absolutely have to have a mixed team. So in the boat, we're nine, but you, you need to have three, uh, three women at all time. So for the moment, it's three. Uh, discussions are... Uh, taking places that maybe it might go up to four. So that will be like four guys, four, four girls in the seats and uh, another person in the stern. So uh, this is another big difference. Also, uh, the difference is that uh, uh, people are sitting side by side. So in Dragon Boat, if you're a left paddler, you're going to be left paddler for uh, your entire career or, uh, or at least for the entire race. In Rabaska, what we do is that we switch side, I'd say probably like every minute or so. 
So yeah. there is a whole technique for us to be able to switch from side to side so that it actually, you know, it's pretty much the same thing as in C2. So you got to be able to paddle on both sides on, on like uh, what Dragon Boat is. Right, yeah. So uh, these all are uh, the main uh, difference. And one of the big difference also is uh, during the Classic, the reason why people don't need to have as much training as in C2 is that during the Classic, uh, there are nine people in the boat, but the whole team can can have as much as 15 people. So like at every feed zone, uh, mm -hmm. you can switch almost half of the boat. Gotcha. So I'd say, let's say if the uh, the, the first uh, the first race is like six hour and a half this year, uh, if you're in a Rabaska, you're probably going to do like four of those hours with the, the break in, in between. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the big differences. Uh, the races, there are switches that actually happens on the shore, uh, the same place where the feed zone are uh, in C2s. So that's one of the big differences. Um, I don't know if you want to talk like about what are the advantage or the disadvantage of, uh, of the Rabaska compared to the C2? Yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I'd, okay, so I'd say probably the advantage of being in the Rabaska is mostly for newcomer. Um, let's say you guys are completely new. You you've seen uh, the C2 at the uh, the marathon, and you say, "Well, I'd like to try that." Well, it's it's kind of hard. I mean, you got to find a boat, you got to find a paddle, uh, you got to find the balance, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. and all the technique. You know, that is a lot of things to learn at the same thing at the same time. Sorry. So the difference with Rabaska is usually when you get there, you just got to try to find the paddle or maybe usually even the teams have them, and you can just come with a team that already exists, and that's it. Just bring your paddle, uh, sit in the boat, and someone is going to show you how it works. So, so I, have, I have a question. Um, when you, so up there, I know you have quite a few different teams. How do those clubs kind of form? Um, that's, you know, that's something I think that that's hard in the U.S. is we don't have, like, a club structure. So is it businesses sponsor a team, or uh, how does that work? Well, I'd say every every team is as different as uh, the other. I mean, there is absolutely no uh, directed way of how it should work. Usually someone is just going to say, well, I'd like to build a team. Uh, they will start with a couple of friends, try to uh, hire uh, more people. Like, would you be interested? Would you be interested? There are a lot of teams, uh, luckily, like the big pool of uh, paddlers is around showing again here, obviously. So there are a lot of people like, they moved somewhere else, so, and they went to another city, and they decided they wanted to continue continue it. So they started like a team on, of their own in their own city. So usually teams are able to get some sponsors, but it works exactly the same as a C2. So there are teams that are able to get like big sponsorship and get a boat completely paid out for them. There are other teams that are like struggling to get. Uh, to get sponsors and they need to pay a little bit more money from from their pockets so um, uh, yeah i mean there is absolutely uh no pattern or no no uh, way of doing it um the thing is that here we have an association though so that anyone that needs help uh, uh can reach out to the association that you know the first year they can actually lend you a boat because uh, they now have two or three boats i think that is owned by the association so at least you can start the first year with a boat because uh, those are those are, are expensive. They're like almost double the price of a C2 because so, they're much bigger, obviously. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's just how it works. So there's not a single team that that's been created the same way as the other, you know. But usually, it's just someone decides that he wants to create a team, and he will he will try to get some paddlers uh, coming in uh, as much as he can. And then who uh, who designs the boats? I know for a while they were using clippers, but I didn't know if you still use those or uh, if there's a local designer in Quebec or. Well, the the first boats that were used were the uh, the big fiberglass boats, you know that uh-huh. you guys probably have uh, in all those um, you know those camps, you know, for the kids and all. So uh, they all started with that, and then uh, obviously the uh, the carbon boats were already already there in C2. So people wanted to be faster. So there was two companies that were building the boats. Uh, they actually made their own mold. Uh, there are two guys here in Chewinigan. And they built a bunch of boats. So uh, yeah, uh, as as the team were forming, they were just purchasing boats from them. And uh, now I think we're having a problem because uh, I think those two guys uh, stopped doing uh, boats, uh, or at least a lot less. But there are still a couple of boats that are still really good that runs around. So teams go by, teams go out. So those boats sells to another team. Um, so yeah, we must have like. Uh, 14 or 15 boats around and there is usually only between 10 and 12 teams so there is always a boat available somewhere and the good thing is that this year uh, the association decided they would do a uh, uh, like a form like a, uh, a standard for the for the size of the boat because otherwise every year or at least every two years someone would come up with a new design and trying to get a faster boat but when when a boat is ten grand, I mean, not every team is able to purchase a new boat. So we right. want to keep the the sport like not too expensive. So this, they decided to uh, uh, to get a standard and say, well, from now on, from now on, the the boats are going to be this size. Well, it's pretty much the same thing with C2. I mean, they're measuring the same thing between the marathon and all. So mm-hmm. they will start doing that just to make sure that it's not coming like a race to uh, to a new weapon every year. So right. Yeah, it's 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 interesting that you guys have, um, you know, rule that there has to be at least three women in the in the boat. But then there was no, you know, spec for the boat. I think that's that's interesting, um, you know, because like in in, you know, outrigger, you know, outrigger might be one of the ba- the closest. I think now that I'm thinking about it to uh, Rabaska, the outrigger, the six man outriggers, but those, you know, you have men's teams, you have women's teams and you have mixed teams. So I think it's interesting that you guys only have mixed teams. Well, actually it, it, it wasn't always like that because there used to be like uh, all men teams mm-hmm. and then there was a category for mixed team and there was a category for all female teams. And that was, uh, I, I can't say how much, but it was probably like 10 years ago or something like that. But the problem is that uh, it ended up having like three three guys team, three mixed team, and one or two right. uh, women's team. So the competition was kind of, you know, uh, everywhere. So you couldn't have a really good competition where when there is only three three teams in your uh, in your category so they decided that everyone is going to be mixed so instead of having like three categories with three participants each well at least will be 10 boats and the uh the strength of all the boats is going to be much more equal 
So that's how uh, it ended up uh, being formed. And I, I think the success is is pretty good because uh, if we would go back to uh, only men's team or just women's team, it's kind of hard to get you know a, a women's team filled up, and especially having like more uh, more teams to actually get a competition between a couple of boats. And I think uh, I've noticed in the C2 up there, it seems like there's a lot more women that paddle now from Quebec. And I wonder if that's um, in part because the Rabaska now has those mixed teams. So it's getting some women started. And like being on a women's team is just different than being on a mixed team as far as like building your confidence sometimes. Um, because if you're like, if you have all the men's teams out front and then all the women's teams like typically won't be as fast, especially if everyone's new paddler. Um, so it's a lot harder, I think, especially for women to like build that confidence that they can be fast paddlers when they're like just finishing out the back all the time. But when Correct. they get yeah. up there yeah. and they're mixing it up with some of the guys, um, then they can be more confident. And especially if you want to transition to C2, <laughs> I know for myself racing up at Classique, like going mixed, at first was really important to me just to have enough speed. Yeah. Right. And, make a and, good point. Yeah. And a lot of knowledge are from, well, uh, I'd like to say that mostly our guys, like older guys that have been there for, for a while. So uh, if you get like a bunch of girls that are, are new, I mean, getting the knowledge is kind of hard. So having everyone mixed up, I think is, is much better because well, Paddling as a guy or as a girl, I mean, it's the same thing. So the knowledge is, it's much more easily. And also the thing is that there are teams that are couples in their teams. So they can actually paddle together instead of paddling each on their side. Mm -hmm. So that's another advantage that uh, that you can have by having mixed teams. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and one of the, the most interesting things for me in regards to Rabaska is that just the overall team aspect and the the way that you can bring, you know, even if you have a, a I like, I, you know, I like that at the Class E, you can have 15 people on your team. And, you know, so if you have an established team of nine, you still have the ability to bring on six newbies, you know, into the sport, you know, um, even when you have an established team already. So I think that's a, a really smart play on uh, your association's part on the, to, to let that. Now, th that's one more question that I wanted to ask uh, before we kind of move on to some of the, the other uh, topics is, um, what other than the Class C, tell me about races. Like, what's the distances that you guys are normally racing in Robosca? Um, I, usually, uh, the Rabaska races during the summer are are almost always the same as the C2 races. So let's say someone makes an event for C2s. Well, usually Rabaskas are also invited. So they're uh, races that are anywhere between an hour and a half and three hours, maybe, mm -hmm. during the season. So that's kind of a, a good setup to, uh, you know, practice for uh, for the Classic, especially since there is a lot of newcomers in the, the Rabaska crowd. So, um, so yeah, those races are about about that distance usually. The, in the beginning of the, of the season, they're about an hour and a half. And then as, as the season goes on, they get longer and longer. And I think the last race before um, for Classic is like uh, three hours and 15 minutes or something like that. Gotcha. Then, um, 
So um, we talked a little bit about that transition from Roboska to C2. Now, how many people do you think that are currently paddling C2 have started in Roboska? Because I think this is interesting for people that like might be uh, that might, are interested in helping the sport grow, and they hear this, you know, how this has actually grown the sport in your area. Um, might be in, interested in knowing about, you know, w- what's the turnover? Yeah, it's kind of, you know, I, I should have taken like the classic list in C2 and try to see who, uh, who, who used to do Rabaska in that. But if I had to guess, uh, it's easily over 50%. And I probably guess it's over three quarter of them that actually started in Rabaska or even maybe even more. Mm-hmm. Um, usually people will here in Quebec will start in Rabaska because it is much more easily accessible. So, um, yeah, it is, um, a very good place to start and people know if they like it or not. And then they will know if they want to like go on and get a new challenge by going in C2. And especially this year, all the newcomers, um, at the classic, cause there was a lot, a lot more this year than, all the other years and uh i'd say uh about uh, all of them came from rabaska actually so i don't know what's what is going to do when rabaska uh, uh picks up next year well if it mm-hmm. if it actually does uh but we might see a little, little bit of a low in uh, the rabaska community because a lot of them are now in uh, in a c2 gotcha yeah and yeah. it was really cool to see at classic this year um there are only i think there are four americans um so everyone else I, I think pretty much everyone else was from quebec or right on the border i think there might have been a couple people from ottawa um but it for me i thought it was super cool to see all the rabaska uh paddlers racing c2 and taking on that challenge and it i think some of that uh like festive like happy energy transferred into the c2 that isn't always there um because a lot of times the rabaska like they the teams come together and are really excited at the end and really celebrate like the accomplishment of finishing the race and i i thought having all the kind of influx of new paddlers into c2 it it felt really exciting like that and it was super fun to sit at the finish and watch everyone come in um yeah. It, was a, it was a big deal, you know, to have so many uh, rookie rookie C2 paddlers finish. Yeah, yeah, it, is a, it is a different feeling uh, when you end up the race. Because in C2, like this year, we were, I think, 3014. So uh, that's like 68 paddler. But if you've got 10 teams in Rabaska uh, at the party at the end, that's like 150 people more at the party. Right. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the vibe is kind of different, obviously, when Rabaskas are there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, like, I was just thinking of, like, you're talking about how, you know, 50% or so or, or more are turning over from Robasca. It made me start to think about how we get people in the States um, into the the sport. And then it just brought me back to this old, old verbiage of I, I come, my dad paddled. Rebecca's dad, <laughs> you know, like the majority of uh, a lot of the paddlers are generational here. 
Whereas in like, uh, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take a wild guess, but your your parents weren't paddlers, correct, Alex? No, they were not. So, you know, there you have it. Where you guys are getting fresh, like totally fresh blood into the sport. So I think that's really great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, uh, that, that's a fact. And I always wondered how you guys do it, like in Michigan, to get so many paddlers during the, the marathon. Well, well, we have we are struggling these years to get like 40 teams just for the Classic. I guess I I always thought maybe Rebaska is pulling a lot of teams. You know, people that are paddling that would probably be paddled in C2 if Rebaska didn't exist. But I always wonder how, how you guys in the marathon end up with over 90 teams. I mean, we haven't seen that in a while here in Quebec uh, during our main event, so. I think part of that is it's, so the marathon's like the only really big thing that happens uh, in those towns on the river because it's a pretty small area. There's not much for population. So I think a lot of the local kids growing up in the high school Like they, you know, they've watched the race their whole lives and they want to do it. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, I also think the marathon historically, at least like the last maybe 15 or 20 years has done a pretty good job of recognizing, like making the last place finisher feel like they really have a big accomplishment. Um, I, I'm not actually sure if they do this anymore, but for like a long time, if you were the last paddler to finish I believe you got to take the checkered flag like from the raft at the finish and that was just like a symbolic you know gesture but they've done a lot to really encourage those paddlers to to feel that accomplishment and I think at least for a number of years the classique was really about um having the, the best competition and the best paddlers there and I think sometimes that lost some of the paddlers that were a little further back Um, and, and kind of intimidated them to come, um, especially this was 10 or 11 years ago now when they cut a bunch of teams when it got really wavy um, on the first day and the times got too slow. Um, I think that hurt Classic a, a bit in the C2. Um, but the association now has done a lot to kind of make the atmosphere more, in, you know, more inviting and um, to make it uh, better for paddlers trying to to make their first finishes. And I think you'll start to see that turn. Um, I know people in Michigan are getting more excited to go up there now. And some of the younger generation, especially it wants to, it wants to come this year, you know, it's just been hard with the, the pandemic. We didn't know if we didn't know when we were crossing the border, if we would make it, but uh, we were also racing like, you know, together with, with other U.S. paddlers, so if you don't make it, at least your partner's not stranded. Well, I guess Sylvia would have been stranded, but <laughs> <laughs> but she she would have had to race with uh, Tony, uh, I guess, if Mike Schlimmer got stuck and I got stuck. <laughs> you, are, you are you're making you're making me have flashbacks, Rebecca, of the marathon week when I'm getting texts from Sylvie that um like oh I'm waiting for my test to come back and. Like, yeah, uh, it was just oh, man, that was such a stressful time. But, yeah, it seems a, I, I'm hopeful that next year, you know, everyone's we're all getting better at, at living with this um, one way or another. So hopefully we'll get so we can get to the races more easily again next year. Yeah. Yeah. So um, 
in your email you had that there you wanted to talk about the attempts to me to bring Robasca to to U.S. You want to speak on that um, because I think this is an interesting topic. Um, we do have different paddling disciplines, but we're, I've really we've really and we're going to talk about it. Really, only seen Robasca at the marathon. Well, yeah, exactly. But the thing is that uh, the president of the association, uh, Martin Gervais, did a really good job for uh, between 2016 and 2019. He, he actually um, organized some trip to the um, to the Osibel uh, race. So the, principle, the, the, the thing was that uh, they were coming with, uh, I think every year they were at least three or four Robascas. Um, and then they were doing like... Uh, two-thirds of the race mm-hmm. uh, the first day was uh grailing to mayo and they were doing that on friday night i think it was after the sprints and then they would do the finish like they would get to the finish like an hour before the first canoes so it was from five channel dam to uh oscoda mm-hmm. so it was kind of um like uh a little race that was organized so that people could see it. And then uh, you had a contact over there. Uh, the guy's name was Calvin uh, Ugerheide, I believe. And uh, he actually bought a Rabasca and he was really into it and really wanted to to build a team. So I think Martin always had hope that probably at some point we'll be able to, uh, to have an American team come to the Classique. And uh, well, that didn't end uh, as, uh, as he wanted, but we always wondered why they didn't they didn't work. You know, I mean, probably maybe the Osible isn't the right time to promote because everyone is in race mode and you know right. you don't really want to think about that. But then I, I'm thinking about all the teams. You know, those that are from uh, let's say position 40 to 80 that never have any uh, any will to come to the classic ever because you know they're doing the uh, the marathon and then their season is just done. Right. But then, yeah. but then, if you come to the classic in the Rabaska, being 15, and and doing like just two thirds of of the race, and it's much easier because all you have to do is paddle. You don't have to learn the river or anything anything like that. So I thought that could probably be something interesting for those that want to try the classic and don't really want to try it like in a C2 because I know that a lot of people are afraid of the white water or or all or uh, or uh, like a big river like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in a Rabaska, whitewater is is ex- ex- extremely easy. I mean, it's not even close to what it is in the C2. So I thought that probably would be interesting for, for those kind of people. And it never kind of uh, worked the way actually Martin wanted it to work. So I don't know if there might be something in the future. At the same time, I mean, it's kind of hard to have someone start a team. And if you don't have any other team to race against, Right. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's kind of hard to see where the beginning point would be. You know, having the first one is hard, but then when you've got one, you actually have you need to have a second one if you want to uh, do a race or something. You know. Yeah. I, I I now that you're saying this, it's making me think. So like, I live um, about 25 minutes away from probably one of the the best. Um, water sports parks that there is um definitely in the u.s it's it's called uh, nathan benderson park it's where they have um the canoe and kayak sprint um olympic trials were held the rowing 
Olympic trials were held. The triathlon Olympic trials were held all at this park. Um, that's where the Dragon Boat Worlds uh, Nationals was this year, and Worlds uh, Club Worlds is there there this year in like May. Um, and I'm like, this would be a great place for Robotska. <laughs> it would. Uh, it really would. So it, you've gotten me think. You've got me thinking, but. Um, and I think Robasca is a like I said it, the the difference between like Robasca and like other you know I mean I guess Outrigger they do longer races but you know Dragon Boat you're talking you know two thousand meters is their longest race um, whereas in with Robasca you're you're talking you know regular marathon you know um, distance courses so um, it it is a totally different. Uh, um, sport but and, it, and i i kind of wonder uh so what i've done quite a bit of racing in canada and it seems like there's more i don't know if it's more of like sport club type paddling or more paddling like i don't know if you'd say like culturally relevant uh paddling but it just seems like a I don't know, maybe because I only, you know, I go to Canada so much to paddle, but it just seems like, you know, when I've been to, uh, I mean, I've, you know, the Yukon and, and all the provinces, there's just some, you know, communities have community boats or big team boats around, you know, in Saskatchewan, we've raced a lot of Voyager. Um, we paddled big boats in the Yukon. We paddled some big boats, um, in Manitoba. And I wonder too, like, that's just something, at least in my part of Michigan, where pretty much everyone paddles C2, you know, there's, there is a dragon boat club, I think in one of the cities, but it's like one team. Um, So I wonder if that's part of, part of why it struggles to catch on sometimes. Yeah, it is possible. And here dragon boat is a pretty big thing here. Uh, actually, so we have a lot of people in Rebasca that are coming from Dragon Boat. I, I'd say that's probably like the uh, when someone is fed up to do, like you say, the 2000 meters races, they want to try something that takes more time. They will come to Rebasca and they still get that that team sport aspect that they might like, um, which they wouldn't have in a C2. And the, the, the crossover is much easier in Rebasca than it is in uh in a c2 so obviously if you guys don't have that much of dragon boats that's probably a a place to start but i think the first thing would be would probably be to to take some paddlers that are not paddling as much as they used to uh Mm -hmm. just try to get together and uh you know start a boat but then are the boats available over there i don't know are are there Mm -hmm. some in the like the 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 kids camp or do they have those somewhere or uh are they just completely not available so yeah i think in i think in canada you guys can get like more of those like fiberglass clippers and stuff are just available like the big i mean like you know the are 25 feet long or whatever and i we just don't have at least in michigan much of that at all i mean they pretty much like if it's a kids camp they do like an aluminum like 17 foot aluminum c2 is really common uh from what i've seen um but I really like that, you know, the the cost of the boat, especially if you get one that isn't as racy maybe as you guys have up there. I mean, they're for how many people you can paddle, 
they're relatively cheap to make. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, you know yeah. which is a, a good way to get a club started. Yeah, because uh, uh, an, uh, an OC6, unlimited OC6, you're talking 25, 30 grand for for one of those boats <laughs> so yeah <laughs> yeah and you can you can't really get kids into that i mean in Rabasco, there are a lot of places where there are 10 year old kids that mm-hmm. do that you know as long as the guy the stern guy knows how to steer the boat i mean even if it doesn't go fast i mean it will still go forward so right yeah yeah and you can paddle them you know on a lot of different water too like you like we have a, my family has one of the clippers and we've paddled it on Lake Michigan. We've paddled it on our little river at home. I mean, we're not going to take it out in like crazy, crazy big water, but I mean, we've been on really open water and then in the shallow river and you don't have to worry about, you know, hitting the ama or you can still turn the boat too. you know, some, some boats don't steer that well when they're that long. So um they're they are fun to paddle so i've never done it as an r9 but i've i've done the the voyager with six before i well yeah i've done i think six is the most we've taken out um one in each seat but so so what's the difference between a voyager and uh, robasca i think now the designs are a little bit different but 20 or so years ago, I think they were using the, the, I, I think they started out using the, what I, what I'm calling a Voyager, um, with six seats in it, 25 feet long. And then I think as the clubs, I, and Alex, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think as the clubs, you know, got more advanced and wanted to race more, they started designing a little bit more of their own boats to be faster and lighter. Yeah, exactly. They're probably uh, they're probably the same. It's just that they they actually reduce the number of seats um, in what we call the Rabaska. Uh, I guess well, Voyager is probably like the um, the English term that you guys yeah. use. Yeah. Yep. So um, yeah, exactly. And they decided to uh, go down to nine for the reason I explained a little earlier. So they just put either they put less seat or there is one seat that doesn't have anyone on it. Yeah, I think. If I remember right, one of the middle seats you take out and put the cart kind of in that spot. Um, uh, no, the cart is uh, no, the cart doesn't come with us. Oh yeah, uh, your cart doesn't have to go with yeah, you. Sorry. No, exactly. But yeah. but usually the seat is still there because um, there are boats that you know those carbon they're kind of easily breakable. So uh, ah, we've had problem stiffness. where where a seat breaks during a race. So at least we've got a, a race uh, a spare seat so that. Okay. People can can use the other seat uh, if they want to, you know. Gotcha. And I have a question on your teams. Um, so obviously your sternman is probably your most uh, experienced paddler. And then do you put kind of your next, like your team leaders, I imagine, are in the bow, and then your newer people go kind of in the middle, or how do you set that up? Yeah, exactly. Uh, usually, the uh, the director or the uh, the people, the person with the most knowledge is like the stern guy, um, and the uh, the guy in the, the the bow seat, like the front seat, is pretty important because just like in a C two, it's 
it's them that actually gives the the stroke uh, how fast we're going to stroke uh, they have to be extremely timed together because if you, they're not timed i mean all the rest of the boat is going to be uh a uh, big mess. Uh, I'd say the newer paddler, paddler, especially during the beginning of the season, goes all the way in the back because if they're not time with everyone else, they don't screw the rest of the boat. And uh, usually, just in terms of balance, uh, seat what we call number four, which probably the seat number three, if you count if you count from the beginning, is usually the the heavier paddler, the stronger guy, so that the the tip of the of the boat. Is a little bit higher than the back, so that it floats better, and also because the races are mostly going downstream. So that's okay. usually uh, how it's made, and every every team has their own way of balancing the boat. Not everyone has the same opinion. Some people uh, like it tipping like more forward, others backward. Uh, but one of the most important thing thing that the teams have to do is to balance the left from the right, which you don't have to do in a C2. So that's mm. a harder thing, trying to get people that are approximately the same weight in the same seat. Gotcha. So that, that's always a challenge. There are teams that are extremely, uh, that think it's really important. They actually even bring a balance to, <laughs> to weight their, uh, uh, their paddler before they enter the boat. Uh, <laughs> not every team is that, that crazy, but uh, I've seen it and it's still done uh, these days. So, yeah, everything that can be done to be competitive. I mean, uh, everyone has their own uh, secret for uh, their own sauce. <laughs> so I uh, I went up I, a few years ago and Christy Trustin uh, rode to Classic with us and raced Rabaska. And she had told the team she they needed a, a woman for a seat so she told the team what she weighed and we get out of the car and they had the scale like as soon as we get there so they're gonna weigh her to pick her seat and she gets on the stale, scale and I think the ground was uneven like it was in a parking lot so it was like 30 pounds heavier than she told the director <laughs> <laughs> and they were like Telling her to like run laps around the parking lot and then come back and weigh again. <laughs> and she's like, I don't weigh this much. I don't weigh this much. And they were like mad because the boat was going to be off balance. But uh, she ended up, she was a good, really good paddler. So after they weighed her the next day and she lost like 20 pounds. So then she was okay. <laughs> that was a good night. Yeah. <laughs> So. <laughs> that's funny but th that that gets me to m one of my questions is how do, does selection go in the boat like um we were chatting uh, a little bit and we we're talking about you don't it's hard to know how much how strong of a paddler you are when you're in a boat of nine um how do you guys determine like who's the strongest paddler and stuff like that yeah, it is kind of hard, but I mean, and there is no secret way. Obviously, those that have more experience are usually better paddler than others. Uh, and I think, you know, it's it's kind of a feeling. I mean, just looking at a at a video of someone, I'm sure you you're able to say, uh, someone in a C2, are they fast? Are they slow? I mean, are they going to be like in the top five, or are they going to be in the back of the pack? I mean, just by watching videos, you can see it. So. Just by getting the feeling, looking at them, how they paddle, how, how they, they do their catch and everything. I mean, you can see it pretty, 
pretty quickly. And also, who's in shape, who's not in shape, because in a city world, I mean, pretty much everyone is is in good shape. But it's not always the case in Rebasca. Some people try to do Rebasca because they want to get in shape. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you kind of know quickly who's going to be your uh, your good assets and who are going to be more of a challenge. But the yeah. way the, the teams are formed, I mean, if if you if you want to mean like uh, how do you pick your paddlers, who are you going to pick? I'd say most teams just use the people that they're able to get. Uh, it's not like there is a, a huge pool of paddler and and uh, mm. they can just pick whoever they want. You know, there are teams that that are in there to win, so they will be very picky about who they're going to uh, to get. And then you get a team that is pretty new, or a team that is from out of from out of city here, and uh, they don't have that much of a of a big pool of paddlers, so they don't have that many people. So they will just ask their friend, "Are you interested in trying it?" So. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just trial and error. Try to see uh, who's interested, who could be good. But usually, uh, there is not a lot of choice to to do. I mean, you just paddle with whoever you're able to get in the boat. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's something that you know, like you make a you make some good points, and when you don't have a, a large pool of paddlers, then you, you kind of got to take what you got. But so. Um, why don't we, uh, kind of wrap things up with, what do you, I mean, unless Rebecca, do you have anything that you want to I have just one more question. So as, uh, Alex, as you transition this year and race your first classic C2, uh, what was, I guess, harder than you thought it would be? And was there anything that was easier than you thought, um, coming into Um, it? Yeah. I don't think it was harder than I thought, just because probably I've been preparing for like three years <laughs> instead <laughs> yeah. of someone that just comes up and that's never paddled and does his classic the first year. I mean, even if I was, it was even if it was the first time that I was doing the classic, I still had some expectation, you know, as to where I was going to to place in in the field. Uh, I knew I wasn't going there to, to get there last, you know, uh, just because I had been paddling for a little while. But I'd say compared to the first year in Rebasca, I think my first year in Rebasca was much harder. Being completely new, so I can't even imagine if that was my first year and I would have done the classic like in a C2 right away. Oof, I, I don't know if I, if it, uh, yeah, I don't think it would have worked. That's for sure. So, so yeah, but obviously it takes a lot more training in C2 because there is a lot of, there is a lot more technique that you need to know compared to Rabasco, where you know the first year that I started paddling in Rabasco, all I had to do is bring your paddle, get in the seat, and just paddle. We'll take care of it of everything else. So that was kind of nice for uh, for a newcomer. You know, all I had to do was just learn, and everything was done for me. I, I didn't even know where the races were. I just had to uh, hop in the van and let's go. <laughs> we're going there. So <laughs> th- that's pretty nice for a newcomer and. In a C2, there is so much to learn the first year that, you know, doing a big event like the marathon or the classic the first year, that's a heck of a challenge if you're not already a very, very good athlete. So, but the two sports are pretty different. I mean, doing a whole classic in the Rabaska without any switches, that would be probably much harder than a C2 because you don't get the glide in the Rabaska that you get in a C2. So I'd say it's probably the same as 
you know, the feeling as if you're paddling in shallow water. It's always like you're paddling in concrete and because the boat is so heavy. And also the fact is that in a C2, if you end up and you have a little bit more energy at that time and you say, oh, let's go, let's do a sprint. Only two people need to, uh, you know, stroke a little bit harder and the boat is going to go faster. It doesn't work that way in the Rabaska. If if you're having a boost of energy and decide that, yeah, I'm going to paddle faster, it won't change anything unless everyone in the boat paddles faster yeah. at the same time, you know? So it is a, a different story, but um, yeah, it, it's a different challenge. I'd say the C2 challenge is much more technical compared to the Rabaska. Um, but uh, yeah, I just had much more training mm -hmm. during my first C2 Classique. So that probably helped uh, thinking that it was less hard than what my first Rabaska year was. I will say that you don't. If you want to get into C two, you don't have to do the classic the first year. <laughs> no, exactly. But then at the same time, you train all year, and then you see everyone going at the big race, and you're mm -hmm. on, on shore watching them. So mm -hmm. I, I was lucky enough to be able to train in a C one and a C two while I was doing the Rabaska also. So I was able to train for two years and still do the classic, but I was doing it in Rabaska, so yeah. I didn't have the frustration of just you know training all year and then oh, i'm not going to do the big event because i don't feel like i'm ready right yeah so, yeah that was pretty nice Great. yeah we run into that in michigan where where people aren't they don't feel ready the first season but they feel like they don't have a you know sometimes they'll do the marathon even though they don't feel like they're ready because they don't know how else to end their season mm -hmm. and you know that sometimes they don't make it very far and they get really frustrated um, because they knew they weren't ready, but they just want to race so badly. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a big frustration after all those, uh, hard training hours. And then you just got to tell yourself, yeah, I'm not going to do it this year. That's kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, it, and even the marathon, I think, well, some people, I, I think it depends of the, in, of the opinions, but some people say they, they think the marathon is harder. Some people say they find it easier. I guess it depends on where you are in the pack, but I know the marathon is on, is on my bucket list, but I didn't feel I was a uh, good enough athlete yet to, uh, to be able to go and achieve it. So it will yeah. be there at some point, but uh, yeah, and it's even earlier in the season. So yeah, it's for me, I, I think classic is a lot more technical uh, and I think it's like you, I, I think it's a lot more technical. So for me, that's more intimidating. But I'm from Michigan, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm used to our little rivers. <laughs> I I want to interject another point into the kind of into this conversation that we're having about you know going to you know having these big races and um, how a lot of people you know might enter these races too early. Man, I, th I feel like this is something where um, the lack of coaching in our sport is really helps perpetuate this. Now, tell me if you guys don't agree, but, um, you know, if you look at like something like triathlon, you know, uh, which has the Ironman in Hawaii, you know, um, Kona. No triathletes that really start in the sport say, oh, man, I got to go do Kona this year when they first start. You know what I mean? So, like, 
but I feel like a lot of people that start in these other types of endurance sports, they a lot of them have coaches that are able to sit down with them and say, hey, this is where your ability level is this year. This is what we should try to do this year. And then, you know, slowly build them up to doing bigger and more difficult challenges um, as as it goes on. But I feel like our sport doesn't have that um, network of coaches that are out there that are able to give them this, you know, uh, perspective to our newer newer athletes. You guys agree with this? Yeah, I just totally pro- probably. And I think one one of the problem also is that in canoe marathon there is a lack of of a structure because everyone does it differently. So I think it's kind of hard to do a coaching as, you know, are you going to coach the way that you train or the way that you paddle? I mean, there are some basic technique, but every team is so different. Every every athlete is so different the way they train. When you get into triathlon, there are proven ways of, you know, you should do that much volume and uh, uh, <laughs> that much distance. And like I've been listening to to uh, other podcasts and things like that. And everyone trains differently. So Mm -hmm. what is the right way? What is the wrong way? There is absolutely no structure in Canoe Marathon that says, yeah, well, this is the proven way and this is how it should work. (laughs) Let's coach you this way, you know? So I I think this is kind of hard. Then you got to get your tip from a coach that comes from from another type of sport, but then it doesn't always relate. So no. yeah, it is it is a problem. Luckily here, the uh, association uh, in a C2 started uh, uh, doing more and more uh, like technique uh, clinics to help mm-hmm. the, the the new paddler. Uh, but yeah, it it is a challenge in marathon canoe for sure. And I, I do think that's something that it's. I mean, we definitely don't have the structure that big sports like triathlon have but it's interesting to see it change like as uh stuff gets easier online there's a lot more information now even than there was five years ago and so much more information than there was 10 years ago so like i really appreciate kevin putting the podcast together and alex volunteering to meet with us today because that you know that's all just building that that bank of information for everyone out there and you know if someone takes one thing from the podcast that's you know a positive for anyone starting out or someone who's just trying to learn what to do next yeah couldn't have said it better better. that that i think is a good place to leave this episode um thank you guys for listening you diehards out there that are still listening (laughs) and the the 14 of you that there are out there, but, um, I kid, we're, we're actually growing the, growing the podcast pretty decently. So make sure to, um, share the podcast, uh, to your, uh, to your social networks, um, really helps build, uh, build our audience base. And, um, thank you, Alex, for, for proposing this topic and coming on and talking with us and until next time, guys, keep paddling on. Thank you for listening to the CanoeRaceWorld.com podcast, where we love marathon canoe racing and aren't afraid to say it. Be sure to visit the website at CanoeRaceWorld.com and don't forget to support our sponsors who make this whole thing possible. Until next time, keep paddling.